Emily Gallagher is the newly elected state assembly person for District 50 in New York State, which comprises the northern section of Brooklyn. She's a member of the Democratic Party and the Democratic Socialists of America. She is an activist and organizer and has worked tirelessly for new parks, protected bike lanes, and safe streets. I'm Lindsay Sturman for Bike Talk. We talked to her after her primary, but it was before the election, but she ran unopposed, so she's basically the de facto winner and has since won. Emily is a cyclist. She wants more advocates in office so that the people who know the issues the best are writing the laws. So I, the first question is, oh, are you, are you, is it correct that you're running unop- unopposed? Yes, yes. In this election, I had a, a very challenging primary, but um, that's really where things are fought out in New York is in the primary. So luckily, luckily in November, it's just me. Great. Yay. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, So when you get into the state assembly, what are the first few things you want to get done? Well, we ran on quite a lot of visionary ideas when we launched our campaign in 2019. But of course, Now we've seen such a catastrophic shift in New York City. Uh, It is, it is so, we are in such a serious situation in our state, in our city, in our country. Um, Here we have depression level unemployment. Uh, We have a budget shortfall in the state government with no uh, federal help and really, you know, needing federal help and not really being able to to get what we need from the federal government. Uh, and we have a, a austerity um, budget that has been set up, which is meaning that we have slashed budgets across the board um, for all the services that we need most desperately, for our hospital system, for our, um, you know, our unemployment and all of the other kinds of uh, systems that that people are the most reliant on right now. Uh, so we we really need to shift to pushing for uh, emergency action. And the first thing that we need to do is to push for new streams of revenue that at this point the governor is unwilling to to make happen. The number one thing that I am concerned about is new forms of taxation for the most wealthy in the state. During during the last few months, we actually have multiple new billionaires in New York because of the profits that they've made off of um, the quarantine and at lockdown. so what we really need to do is make sure that those folks are paying their fair share and also to think more robustly about all the different ways that we could be extracting money for the state from a lot of the wealthiest, uh, you know, footfall. So, you know, one of the things that's really exciting is like a stock transfer tax. So I'm really focused on making sure that we get those new revenue streams. It's gonna be a major battle, um, but it's something that we absolutely need. And one of the revenue streams that um, we might wanna talk about later that we were very excited to have was congestion pricing. That was a bill that had been passed and it's just been kind of 
dropped. Nobody's really talking about it anymore. Um, they were supposed to make a number of changes to the bill to make everyone kind of come together on it. But instead of that happening, it's just kind of been abandoned. So making sure these kind of ideas end up at the forefront are some of the things that I'm the most concerned about. Um, yeah, I think our state has long been intimidated by the wealthiest who live here. And I think the temperature of my election and primaries across the state uh, with more left thinking uh, candidates winning shows that most of this state is ready for a different way of functioning. So one of my most urgent um, ambitions is to, to really push that through. Um, and in terms of the, the pushback, and I know we're talking about transportation, I'm just right. curious for one second yeah. to go down that road. The pushback, what is the pushback on taxing the wealthy? Yeah, so there's, there's some mythologies there that have been disproven by when other states have done this and when our own state has done it in the past. The mythology is that if you add taxes to the wealthiest that they'll move and they'll uproot all of their tax revenue and go to a different state. While they may happen from case to case, it, it just doesn't happen across the board. And it certainly, um, it certainly has been said time and again in different shapes and forms. Like when we were fighting against Amazon HQ2 here, uh, which would have been in the district next to mine and would have had major impacts on my district as well. Uh, one of the things we kept hearing is we need job creators like Amazon to work here. Uh, we need people like Google and Amazon. Well, they're all still here. They, we just didn't give them a tax break for the next 50 years, you know? So a lot of it is we, we have this mentality that if we don't give the billionaires everything they ask for, then they'll give us nothing. And it just hasn't proven to be true. And we need to trust that there is a social contract and that there should be a social contract. So, um, you know, it's, it has been interesting to see the levels to which things have gotten in some of the other places like Seattle and San Francisco, where they've allowed um, really robust billionaire companies to develop there before they put any kind of taxation down for those individuals and those companies. And now those companies have a lot of say in what's going on. They try to push back against those taxes. We need to set those taxes up right now before um, we're at a conversation with folks who aren't going to be willing to listen mm -hmm. before we've already given things away. Um, so, so yeah, I'd love to hear more about congestion pricing. <laughs> Yeah. One of my favorites. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things too. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I was a, that's one of the issues that actually compelled me to run. I didn't understand why there was such a holdback on congestion pricing here in the city. Um, so I was really pushing for it. And, you know, my, the, the person who was the assemblyman before did ultimately support it, but he was not an early supporter and and my district is one that has a, a huge number of cyclists in it and also 
um, we have some of the highest levels of cyclist death. Um, but that's not the only thing that um, we're up against in terms of, of cars and car congestion. We are next to the Brooklyn Queens Expressway and we have a few major bridges that are right alongside us, including the Williamsburg Bridge, which goes through my district. And all of these contribute to a terrible air quality that we have mm -hmm. here because of the mass congestion. Uh, so we actually have some of the highest rates of asthma in the entire metropolitan area in parts of my district. And the only way that we're really going to fix that is by getting rid of some of the car um, fumes. I was speaking to some scientists who are working on the air pollution in this district. And I asked them like, what, what do you suggest for us to be able to move forward uh, with, with making the air a better quality for our residents? And the number one thing they said was we have to cut majorly the number of cars that are operating here. And there's so many ways that we can do this. Uh -huh. And that is really at the core of my transportation platform. If you're gonna, a lot of the times that people are turning to cars, it's because public transit is not sufficiently serving uh, the community that's there. Mm -hmm. um, it's because public transit maybe exists, but isn't efficient or isn't a pleasure to ride. And uh, it is also sometimes because of cost, like maybe it's actually cheaper both in time and in upkeep and money to have like an old car that you drive back and forth in this part of the district that might be a transportation desert, right? So we can actually fix most of those problems with public transit um, and also with getting people on bikes and, and helping expand people's mentality of what it means to be a cyclist. Uh, and that is also gonna help us take cars off of the street. So yeah, I would say one of my goals as a person in the state assembly is to make sure that when we are in urban environments and in you know, urban neighborhoods that were actually designed initially for pedestrians, mm -hmm. uh, that we are actually taking that back from the new purpose that they were given in the 1950s and 60s, which was as a car, um, a car culture. Like, I think it's really vital that New Yorkers and other people living in older cities remember that our cities were not designed for cars. We redesigned them for cars. And just as we did that, we can redesign them again for public transit users, for bikes, for pedestrians. That's okay, awesome. my rant is through. No, no, I love it. Um, how, what do you think about, do you know Donald Shoup? Who does the, the parking guru from UCLA? Oh, I don't know him by name, but I would love to hear more. Yeah, he's great. Um, there's actually a, a Facebook group, I think it's called Sh uh, Shupistas. <laughs> oh, great. I'm going to sign up right away. You know, he's, um, so he, he basically is the first person who said parking is too, is too inexpensive. If, you know, the, the whole idea of a parking meter is that it's, the price is supposed to be high enough. So there's always like one or two spots to create turnover for the stores because the parking right. is for the stores. And there's 3 million 
all, you know, he can tell you all the facts, but there's 3 million parking spaces, free parking spaces, I believe in New York. And right. he has the plan. Um, and I, I just find the whole thing so upsetting because I'm like, a parking space is, is somebody's, could be somebody's home. Like that's 350 square feet. That's a small yeah. apartment for somebody. Yeah. We're letting some obnoxious bajillionaire park their $200,000 car yeah. for free. <laughs> I mean, when we have homeless people, like I, I, yeah. I when you add up his plan of, for charging, I think it's $5 a day for a parking spot. It's mm -hmm. not a lot. Um, and then there's a plan to, to charge for all the bridges and tolls and then the congestion pricing. And if you add it all up, it's, um, it's basically the, the equivalent, like eight and a half billion dollars, which is the equivalent of, we get $8 billion from, um, fares. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Incredible. And you know, in environmental policy, there's a lot of thinking about how do you make people aware of the true cost of their behavior, right? So charging for things like street parking or for a residential parking permit, for example, that also helps to make people aware of what the true cost is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very, unfortunately, parking becomes in some, some situations a wedge issue between uh, different generations and groups in our community because some folks really want to prioritize having parking everywhere because their experience of the neighborhood has been and always, always has been through the the eyes of a driver, right? Or a passenger in a car. So, you know, there's been a push in, in our district with new buildings to actually decrease the amount of parking in the building. And that has some interesting, interesting twists to it, right? Uh, because it, it depends on if you're thinking about the parking being the incentive for the car or the, the, um, the reaction of having a car, right? So folks who have more of a, like a car centric focus, when they hear let's put less parking in this building and use it for community space or for, you know, something like that in a new, a new structure, their thought is, well, those folks will have a car anyway and they'll park it on the street and it'll take away more street parking and cause more congestion problems. But folks who are used to being pedestrians, cyclists, or public transit takers, their mentality is, oh, good, that will discourage people from bringing their cars into the neighborhood, you mm -hmm. know? So that, it's like a very interesting way that people are thinking about, you know, is car ownership something that is it's like natural or unnatural, right? Mm. I, I guess that's the, the easiest way to put it. And if you're not, if you're not used to, or you've had really bad experiences with public transit, and a lot of that is in part because, you know, our, our public transit is not very good at being accessible for folks who have different um, mobilities. And that's a main concern. You know, if you have trouble walking, like riding on the subway is not really an option because 
only in this last year have we added escalators or not escalators, um, elevators mm -hmm. to most of the stations. And that was because the ADA had to sue, <laughs> you know, the state, like that's where we're at here. So we have, it's, it's pretty exciting to be thinking about transit at the state level because there's so much good that we can actually do, but it is going to be a battle to get there. Right. And do you, I'd love to hear your thoughts on free transit and bike lanes. Like what would you like to see? Yeah, well, I would really, you know, free transit's definitely one of my dreams. And I would love to see it start with permanent free bus transit. Uh, we did that during the height of COVID for essential workers because the buses were, um, I believe the reason was that the buses were easier to maintain than the subway system in terms of cleaning and, you know, keeping people socially distant and, you know, that sort of thing. So, and also behavior, right? You have your driver right there saying you're not wearing a mask, like you can't come on the bus. Of course, there was like a news story that someone punched a bus driver for saying that, you know, and anyone who's ridden a New York City bus can tell you that that's a felony. <laughs> but, um, you know, I would love to start with free bus transportation. Um, I think we really need to be encouraging folks to take the bus. I think we have a lot of opportunities with the bus and with expanding the bus network. Um, and also, you know, we, I'm, I know I'm going a little off of your question, but when we put in the 14th street bikeway, which was a huge battle and, you know, there were lawsuits against and everything, it's ended up being one of the most efficient um, sectors of transportation in the city, like getting the cars off of that street, uh, really sped up and also, you know, the trucks and everything like that and doing deliveries at certain hours, it really sped up the efficiency of the bus and the bus is inefficient because of the car congestion and because we don't have a good plan for delivery, um, in New York city. So, um, delivery drivers are often competing with commuters and it's just kind of like a disaster on these very, you know, um, busy streets. So yes, I would love to see ideally in my dream world, we have streets that are dedicated busways and we have streets that are parallel to those that are dedicated pedestrian and cyclist ways. Um, and then we have other streets that are for driving or the driving is really, you know, the, if you're driving on the street that has the, the bike way or the greenway, you know, the greenway is prioritized, right? So the cars are being sent to another street um, to, to really be using that. And I think that until we really create some structure around what streets are for what, and really, make it attractive to use those streets and not to take shortcuts or make it impossible to take shortcuts onto the other areas, you know, um, that's where we're going to see things really take off. Right now we have an open streets program that was just made permanent, which I'm really excited about, but I have to say like the infrastructure for it needs to be improved because the other day I was coming back and I was on a bike and I was coming back to my apartment and I was riding down the open street, which, you know, is under five miles an hour. So it's like 
bikes, going slowly, um, pedestrians, uh, some restaurant use, and you know strollers and other kinds of of use there. And um, what I saw was like all of the the police barricades that they used to block the street were totally knocked down. And we have to actually have a volunteer corps <laughs> who maintains the 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 you know the blocks, which is you know it's not. It doesn't make you feel good to every time you're walking on the street that's supposed to be the safe place for you to walk for there to be like knocked down <laughs> French barricades or that are like broken because an SUV drove over them. <laughs> and while I was walking, riding down, I saw a truck with a turn signal on and I could see what he was about to do. He was about to squeeze his car into the bike lane and push the barricade over and then drive down the open street. And I yelled at him, I was like, hey, you know, you're not supposed to drive down that street. And he just was, as soon as he heard my voice, he became infuriated. And he looked at me and he screamed, read the fucking sign. Excuse my language. I hope maybe you have to beep that out. <laughs> but screamed it. And this was a person who is my age and I was just like, why is this person so enraged already? Like, and so at that point I said, okay, I'll read you the sign. It says no cars, bikes and pedestrians only. And then he just zipped, sped the other direction. And I was just like, you know, that is something that I think we really need to work on too. And I think we have some interesting ideas on my team to try to just improve the mentality about driving to and sharing the road. Like there's just like, I think the, the road rage, it, it happens because of all these things we've been talking about already, but like there, there are ways that we can get around that through, through different kinds of driver education too. My theory in LA, for whatever it's worth, I'm from New York, by the way. Oh, um, cool. But is that we are in a state of despair over the traffic because it 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 just eats your life up. It's frustrating. Yes. It's it's like you have to plan around it. It's just a constant stressor, and so it, it's just led over the years to like despair, and yeah. then the rage comes out of that despair. We joke about rage, but it's every. I just see it every day. People cutting each other off, speeding between red lights. It's like, where do you think you're going? <laughs> right, exactly. You know, the, the other day too, I was riding home on a Revel. We have, um, you know, this, this scooter share that's been a little controversial, but I love it. And I was riding home on it and somebody kept, kept tailing me and like blasting their horn at me and trying to get around me. And eventually this sports car just like, cut me off, went into the other lane in a no passing zone and like ripped ahead of me. And then like five minutes later, I see the car again now parked at its destination, which was McDonald's. <laughs> like this person had such an extreme Mac attack that they just <laughs> had to like almost murder me on the road, you know? And, and you know, I get it because right before 
this person had the inconvenience of having me in front of them, which truly is an inconvenience. A scooter just doesn't go as fast, was all this construction and the construction's never announced, right? So you're like driving and then you see all of a sudden you have to do a whole new route. Right. So yeah, that puts you into despair. You can plan as much as you want, but there's always things happening on the street that you have no control over, no matter what mode of transportation you're taking. And it is, it is like, you know, it, it makes you feel like you're not going to accomplish the things that you're going to, you need to accomplish. Your right of way is impinged. Mm-hmm. It, no, it's such a beautiful way to say it too. Cause I, I, I feel like the way through this issue is compassion. Yeah. Um, I'm a writer, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. all about compassion. And, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I feel like, getting into the mind of the Mac attack. <laughs> yes. And, and to me, for whatever it's worth, just sharing my point of view, is that I think if we really set an expectation that we're going 15 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour, it will take you, you know, it's probably going to take you an hour to get from my neighborhood to Santa Monica. Yeah. But you're going to do it at 20 miles an hour. And now you definitely know how long it's going to take. But stop thinking of yourself as this, you know, and the car ads, I think, feed this. I mean, mm-hmm. just whipping through city streets. I'm like, this should be illegal to put this on the air. Yeah. So th- th- there, there are people on Twitter, on bike Twitter, who are like, there's a guy, Tom Flood, who like, um, he, t- he, was, he was an ad guy. He made like Nissan commercials. And then he just was like turned on it. And he mixes up real commercials with like fake stuff to show just to, you know, mock them. Um, (laughs) If you, in terms of like your dream of New York, your dream vision, and oh, I guess, yeah, so you're in the state assembly representing New York, so it would be New York. Right, yeah. Um, Would you? And actually the state in New York has more control over a lot of aspects of transportation, but not all, right? So there's a constant negotiation between the state and city DOT, which is a whole nother thing that needs to be healed. Like, let me tell you. Right. Do you, I mean, if you had your dream, obviously people with ADA accessibility issues need a car, got that. But I mean, what would you, how far would you go with bikes and, and, and bus lanes and, and all of it? Well, yeah, I think it's like the perfect marriage between like, shifting the mentality of right of way, like what you're saying, like finding ways to build compassion. And I'm really excited. We're working on some proposals that we would like to introduce around DMV reform um, and just ways to, to kind of add, you know, there's the, the kind of driver education that we do right now. uh, It doesn't include a lot of information around the, the new kind of, structure that we have on the streets. Uh, there's been a lot of breakthroughs here around, around you know, um, street design, but none of that's like introduced when you're learning to drive. Um, and we also, we don't include a lot of information about what is the best way to drive near a bicycle? What is the best way to drive near a scooter or a pedestrian, right? And I think that by excluding a lot of conversation around that interaction, um, that interaction ends up seeming like a uh, a nuisance, 
like something mm -hmm. that's not supposed to happen. But we know that this is going to happen every single day. Every car trip that you take, just like you're saying, if you know you're going 20 miles an hour, it's going to take X amount of time. If you know you're going to sometimes be behind a bike, sometimes be, you know, waiting for someone to finish crossing the street. Someone is going to, you know, maybe, you know, be turning out of a bike lane and cross your your pathway, like how do you handle that? That's gonna help better prepare people mentally and emotionally for dealing with that. And then I think the, the other step with that is really trying to keep these different um, vehicles in their lanes, right? Like have space for everyone, actually have space for everyone. Because I think sharing the road works in some occasions, but I think you know, a lot of the bicycle death that we see or pedestrian death happens in areas that really are an area that is dominated by cars and occasionally you have a cyclist or or pedestrian. And I'm using occasionally very loosely, like, because it's still happening every day, but it's not like, you know, it's not a constant stream. I live on a street that has a bike lane coming off of a bridge and it is a constant stream of cyclists. So on the occasion that I am driving a car, I know that I have to look for cyclists because there are always cyclists on that road. But if you're driving down a road where there is rarely a cyclist, you know, that's not in your mind necessarily. So I think, I think having safe routes to every part of Brooklyn and then to expand to the other boroughs, um, that is a really vital component of it too. There are, there are areas that are full of really robust bike infrastructure and then you hit a neighborhood or a part of the community that has been you know, more traditionally car driven and that community board or maybe that section of the community board hasn't agreed to put bike lanes into that section. So then all of a sudden, you've been riding in this bike lane, the bike lane stops abruptly and you don't have anywhere to go except on this road now with all these trucks coming off the BQE onto the same road. And that's where we see these accidents happening. So mm -hmm. I think we really need to make sure that the bike routes are complete and not let it be an issue of taste. Like cycling is not a matter of taste for so many cyclists who I think largely are rendered invisible because they are not white, this is the way that they're making their living. This is their commute. This is the transportation that they're preferring, possibly because they live in a, a public transit desert, right? So I think that there's a lot of, of a windshield mentality that is also a white supremacy mentality where we're we're eliminating parts of a route that only certain people are going to go on right like who's trying to get from this neighborhood to that neighborhood well there actually are people doing that you know mm -hmm. so i think that there's a lot of components in transit there's a lot of racism mixed in there there's also a lot of misogyny right a lot of the careers that we've based our public transportation schedules on are careers that don't even really exist anymore, like these nine to five kind of office jobs in Manhattan, 
right? There's not like necessarily a network there for the caring economy, right? Or for um, folks who are, are working or mothering, right? We do not, in New York, we don't have buses that allow strollers on them. You have to take your child out of the stroller and fold up the stroller. Like that's just actually not efficient for a lot of, and, and if there's more than one mother on the bus, it's almost impossible to get your folded up, you know, stroller on the bus. So we, we really need to be thinking more holistically about all of it. And I want to see, I really went very far with that question, didn't I? <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. You're inspiring me, Lindsay. Like I'm having fun. So, you know, I really want to see just a more robust thinking about who is commuting, right? And I think a lot of it is because Robert Moses was racist. He was patriarchal, right? So the, the infrastructure he designed for our city was based on one class. He was also classist. One class of people who had a certain kind of access, um, who were granted certain privileges, uh, and you know ignored other parts of the community. So what we're doing is also a healing of bringing together these different communities that have long been actually strategically separated to bring them together in a way that says we're one we're one community mm -hmm. resources shouldn't just be piled into this neighborhood they they should be continuously flowing throughout all neighborhoods mm -hmm. okay my speech is done oh, i love it um what do you think the barriers are to this change and I, I should also say, ask as a correlate, what do you think that the state can do? Right. Well, I think a big barrier is that I would, my, you know, I grew up in Rochester, New York. I've spent a lot of time in other cities. And I've got to say that other cities in New York State, I mean, um, I think that the city that still really relies on public transit and has a robust public transit system is only New York City. And I actually think that's a, another inequity with the entire state. I think, you know, I think there might be hesitation to get really into the weeds and invest a lot of, you know, these resources that, you know, have been made scarce because we refuse to put good taxation on, um, on millionaires and billionaires. We refuse to take resources where they're plentiful and we insist on just taking them where they're not plentiful. Um, so we have scarce, forced austerity, forced scarcity. Um, and so I think that there starts to be a mentality that that level of investment into just the city um is unfair to other parts of the state but i think the key is to really become an evangelist of public transportation and that's really going to be a key to the greening of our state you know so to make sure that when we're advocating for strong public transit and strong um infrastructure in the city that we're also finding ways to offer that same benefit to other parts of the state and other cities in the state that are really you know 
have nothing, you know? Um, the, the subway, Rochester, New York used to have a subway system, used to have a very robust bus transportation system. At this point, the subway has been totally abandoned uh, and the bus has been in certain areas. I actually thought this was smart given the low ridership, but there's, there's, they're mostly like mini buses now. Um, but you know, what we should be doing is incentivizing Rochester and Buffalo and Syracuse and, you know, even more rural communities to, um, to develop really good public transit because mm -hmm. that would, that would actually help everybody and make, mm -hmm. make other areas less dependent on cars. But, you know, I think that there's a lot of industry that wants to see cars thriving and, you know, I'm not anti-car, like I will have one, you know, mm -hmm. when I go to back and forth to Albany all the time, I'm, I'm going to be driving a car, but I think knowing the best way to use cars and to not make them the only convenient option is something that we can do across the state. So I and, think that's a barrier. And in terms of just strictly the bike lanes, what do you think the barrier is in New York City? I think that, I think there, well, there's, there's a couple different levels of it. I think, um, like I said earlier, there's a perception of it as like a cultural, like culturally, we erase a lot of the folks who bike and we only really talk about and give voice to white cyclists who are doing it more for recreational purposes. Mm -hmm. We're not necessarily giving voice to the robust community of workers and of folks from all different racial backgrounds who are using bikes as their main mode of transit, you know? So I think that, you know, bikes have become in some communities eyes synonymous with gentrification because of the way that the bike lanes are being, were rolled out and how they were being used. But I think that's something that, you know, I know has been a core concern of some of the really forward thinking folks at the Department of Transportation in New York City, making sure that like we are introducing bike lanes in ways that are culturally appropriate and responsive to the way that that neighborhood is functioning, right? So I think that that's, that's actually a big problem. We end up with like these huge lawsuits over whether or not a bike lane is going to be on a street. I think, and I think half of that is cultural. And then the other part of it is this question about parking and what do we want the street to be used for? And I think that, yeah, until we make street parking have a cost associated with it, that is the way that people think public space should be used. And I think that because of all the restrictions with COVID on the restaurants, and now restaurants are taking over parking spaces in front of their, um, their, their storefront. I think that is really helping people realize mm. that the space that we give on the street 
to different uses is not just binary bike or car. There's actually so many different ways that we can use this public space and that it's actually exciting and fun to put something other than a car in the space on the side of the road. So, you know, I think this is why, you know, it might be most useful to have different streams of kinds of traffic moving through the city, you know, so that the route for the cars is different than the route for the cyclists, is different than the route for public transit. Because then, you know, um, I don't know, is that, that's something I'm, I'm thinking about right now, but I'm sure there's some, some benefits to some integration there. But I think, I think people just are, they've created false boundaries for creativity out in public, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have some friends whose rallying cry is that street parking is theft, mm -hmm. right? And that these cars, these spaces that cars are taking up for private personal use, that space belongs to all of us. Mm -hmm. And by parking a car in that space, you're actually stealing it from the rest of us. And I think that that's an interesting concept and it needs to be really, I think if we're gonna move forward with that, we need to frame it in a way that helps people understand that, you know, parking in a garage might actually mean that there's more for you in the street, right? Like you, your favorite restaurant can still thrive because now they have like a garden terrace out in front of the building. Um, and you can go eat there still. They're not gonna go out of business now or maybe they still will because it's not enough revenue. But um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lack of creativity, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love that. There, I saw a picture on Twitter of um, they took two parking spaces and made it a dog park. Yes, cool. <laughs> um, and and I, I'm sure you know about the Barcelona Superblocks. They, um, I saw a little video about how they came about and they were fought, people hated them. And then the minute they put out um, picnic tables, everybody just gathered and then it was community. That is so beautiful. Isn't that amazing? And you know, one of the things that I saw a friend shared with me was videos of some of the like protests and rallies that happened in Amsterdam around the bike lanes. Like, I don't know how long ago it was. I want to say like 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. And, um, and the reality is that that's become our identity now that we associate with that, that city, but it had to be fought for. But once you win the fight, you know, it, it stops being controversial. And that's one of the funny things about the sidewalk takeover uh, with restaurants is that to get a permit to operate in the front of your restaurant used to be one of the most arduous tasks for a restaurant to go through. And then all of a sudden, everybody gets permission to do it. Yeah. And you know what? Like, yeah, there's been a few problems but it's not controversial. Anything else you want to add or ask? I don't know why you'd want to ask me anything. But <laughs> oh, well, you know, I'm just like, yeah, I love talking about this stuff. And this is really, 
kind of like very like a visionary session. Oh, you know, you did have one question that I really liked, which was like, how, how was I able to develop my transportation platform? And I did want to say that, you know, because I'm coming out of advocacy, I, I've met through the last 15 years, very dedicated activists at all levels of transportation. So I know folks who are grassroots organizers, you know, doing direct action around bike issues. I know folks who work at nonprofits who are doing studies. And then I know folks who work for the government. So I was able to like bring all of those perspectives together and collectively um, put together something that kind of addressed concerns from every angle. And that's something I'm really excited about for Albany is that there are so many people who know these issues so much more deeply than I do to like draw on their knowledge and to put it together, especially the knowledge of activists who have made a lifelong commitment to an issue. That I think is where good policy comes out of. And I'm, I'm excited to be going to Albany with a lot of other people who are coming from activism backgrounds uh, mm. for that reason. That's awesome. Thank you so much. This is really fun. <laughs>